Job chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. I'm reading this afternoon from the Eugene Peterson Message Bible, so my verbiage may be slightly different than yours, but we should be thematically on the same track. Job 3, verse 1. Then Job broke the silence. He spoke up and cursed his fate. Obligorate the day I was born. Blank out the night I was conceived. Let it be a black hole in space. May God above forget it ever happened. Erase it from the books. May the day of my birth be buried in deep darkness, shrouded by the fog, swallowed by the night. Verse 11, why didn't I die at birth? My first breath out of the wound, my last. Why were there arms to rock me and breasts for me to drink from? I could be resting in peace right now, asleep forever, feeling no pain, in the company of kings and statesmen in their royal ruins, or with princes resplendent in their gold and silver tombs. Why wasn't I stillborn and buried? with all the babies who never saw light, where the wicked no longer troubled anymore and bone-wearied people get a long-deserved rest. Prisoners sleep undisturbed, never again to wake up to the bark of the guards. The small and the great are equal in that place and slaves are free from their masters. Why does God bother giving light to the miserable? Why bother keeping bitter people alive? Those who want in the worst way to die can't, who can't imagine anything better than death, who count the day of their death and burial the happiest day of their life. What's the point of life when it doesn't make sense, when God blocks all the roads to meanings? Amen. You may be seated. When life tumbles in, what then? That's the title of a sermon in which a British clergy gave on the Sunday after the death of his wife. He recorded how he thought it was pathetic of so many requests that came into him all across the world seeking copies of his sermon entitled, When Life Tumbles In, What Then? The death of his wife shook him. The 40 plus years of being in ministry, he thought he had witnessed and experienced just about as much as you could possibly see. His feeling was that he had not seen anything that would be of any great surprise to him, only to discover that when his wife took ill and her progress never materialized, instead it demised to the point of her departure. It broke him into many different pieces. In fact, he said, he took the moment to read C.S. Lewis' book entitled The Problem of Pain, in which Lewis records what happens in his own life after the death of his wife. Lewis says that he never thought that pain could be so horrific and would be so personal until he had to walk through the valley of the shadow of death himself. That British clergy tells after learning of his pain that comes from his wife's death that he learned something in that moment that his 40 years had never really taught him before and that was that you absolutely cannot serve God without a moment of experiencing God. That's a deep thought if you take a moment to gymnastically run it through your minds, let it jump through all of the hoops, 
Because the initial question is, if you're serving, you should already know who God is. No, the underscore is under the word know. Because it's not simply a sense of knowledge in my mind and even in my heart about who God is. It's the experience of encountering God in a moment in which the darkest of life has visited your situation. And now you need to know more about God than just theory. You need to know God by way of experience. You can live for a while off of the testimony of others. In fact, you might can live a good period of time living off of what you have been taught by your parents or anyone else who introduced you to the person of Jesus Christ, but nothing is going to substitute that face-to-face -face encounter that you must experience yourself. Nothing will define what it means to walk with God more pointedly than your own personal exposure to the person of Jesus Christ. The book of Job is an interesting, fascinating book. It reminds us of the reality of living, and that is that life cannot be lived in only the land of health and wealth, the name it and claim it, believe it and receive it. Life is entailed in more than that. In fact, I would contend that life, arguably by some, might be a balance between the good and the bad. What we often do not know is that what bad we may see could very well be a balance to the good only because we have limited sight of what we see. We can only see what happens to us and around us, but never what's away from us. On the other side of the world, there's somebody else whose life may very well be more tragic than you could ever imagine. It may not even be on the other side of the world. It could very well be next door to where you live, the person who is under cover of a roof and shelter may very well be living a life of miserable pain, one of frustration and agony, and one of even assumed defeat. When you read the book of Job, most of you, if not all, are quite familiar with the prosperity of Job. You know very well that he had blessed children, he had a blessed economy, he had blessed possessions, he had everything arguably that a man could want. The Bible says in that first chapter that he was a good man, a righteous man, he hated evil and did that which was good. It says that even when his sons who had a feast on a regular basis inviting their sisters over and perhaps others in the celebration, Job on the next day would take an offering to the church house that he might offer it because, says the text, they may have sinned and not repented of their sins. And so Job felt responsible to become an intercessor for his own children that where they failed, he may pick up to cover their shortcomings. There are interesting things about the story of Job that troubled me. It troubles me because they are unanswered questions. They are movements of God that frustrate me to a great deal. Job helps us understand that no matter how knowledgeable you think you are in understanding God, rest for sure, you can't figure God out. There are some things about God that you will find identifiable in your experience because that's the joy of knowing God and God will make it clear to you that there are some things you got to know in order to know that you're walking with God. But trying to figure out every single maneuver 
of why God does what God does will not only give you a headache, but it may very well lead you to a very nervous breakdown. The first chapter of Job unveils for us Job's overwhelmingly blessed life, but it also introduces us to a strange movement by God. It says that, God, that Job obviously was a worshiper of God, and yet God brings an interesting interruption in the life of Job. The Bible says in a very strange way that when the angels came to report to God what was going on, Satan came along with them. A high suggestion that I think that Satan comes to church on the regular that just as you and I attend, so he's in here probably somewhere. That's not an indictment to anybody. It's just a recognition that every spirit ain't the spirit of God in this place. But that the activity of spiritual warfare probably takes place best in the space that we would hope be saturated by the anointing of God. But they came to report and Satan came along with them, says verse 5 in the text. But Eugene Peterson says that Satan is the designated accuser. He's the designated accuser because as a fallen angel, his job now is to be extremely disturbed that the people of God still stands in favor with God even after their fall from a perfect state called paradise. His job is to create chaos among us. Bear in mind that even when our shortcomings derive from bad decisions, it's that to which Satan takes to reverse their effect that they may create such chaotic space in our journey that it frustrates us to a point where we almost will throw in the towel. It says that he came, and when he came, God singled him out asking, what have you been up to? That's a troubling question for me because I want to know, God, why even ask Satan anything in the first place? Why do you want to know where he is, what Satan is about. However, my sanctified imagination says that's actually a good question for you need to know where evil is all around you and sometimes you might need to raise questions so you can track where its presence is. Now, that's problematic for me as a theology student because God being omniscient already knows where Satan is, so why ask the question? Well, it might very well be a literary device that the writer is using to help the reader understand that every now and then, take the blinders off and make sure you keep track of where evil is all around your journey. And the writer wants us to see that if God raises the issue of where is Satan, what's Satan up to, how much more should we raise the question, where is he at? Because you know without question, if it ain't one thing, it's another. And we know trouble, where it comes from, is generally initiated by the evil one himself. And Satan responds by saying, I've been going to and fro, up and down, all around the world, just checking things out as to what's going on with people. And then God says to Satan, have you considered checking out my servant Job? Now, we like Job, we like Job, because all of us are really Job's undercover. We all fit into the mold of Job because when we know who Job is, we identify with what it means to suffer from time to time. Have you considered my servant you? 
your name very well could be floating in the heavens right now in a conversation between the divine and the satanic where God asked volunteering your name for a challenge in your journey have you considered him her him her don't don't shake too bad but that's that's the reality of what it is and Satan responds by letting God know that that God even though you say there's no one like him he's honest and true to his word and he's devoted to you Satan says do you really believe that Job is doing all this for nothing that he serves you just because you are a good God the reason being because you keep protecting him you keep providing for him you've given him everything that he's ever wanted but I would contend if you strip away or let me strip away what he has he will curse you to your face and you'll see the real joke God perplexed me again by telling Satan go ahead do what you want to do with him just remember there's nothing you can do to his soul I'm troubled God didn't email me, didn't text me, didn't call me, didn't call a summit with me, didn't suggest to me anything about volunteering to be demonically attacked. I, I would think that uh, if you love me that much, you'll let me know or we'll at least talk about if you're going to volunteer me for warfare. Well, Satan comes back, strips them all. I told you. I told you. But the text says that even after being stripped and he lost it all and God gave him the right to do so, Job doesn't curse him. In fact, Job contends I came out of my mother's womb with nothing and I'm going back with nothing. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's not the kind of reaction I expect to experience when you've lost everything but, but maybe it's a progression because Job is saying, listen, if you lose everything materially, at least if you got your help, you you still in good graces, you still in a good posture. If you lose everything materially, in fact, the second time in regaining it may be a better experience. You you learn more from the first time. You know exactly what you need to do to get back there. So, Joe, don't worry about it. you didn't come here with anything, and if you have to leave, you certainly are going to leave, in fact, with nothing as well. But then God has the nerve to come back and ask Satan again. What you doing? What you up to? Have you considered my servant Job? Chapter 2 says that he asked the same question. And then when he does so, Satan says, you know what it is. A man doesn't serve you for nothing, God. Take away his health and his strength. Take away his vitality. In fact, he only serves you because you got a hedge all around him. You won't let anything get next to him. You keep protecting him, watching out for him. Take that hedge away and I guarantee you, he'll curse you to your face. And the Bible says an interesting thing. The Bible says back in chapter one that as Job begins to listen to these criticisms or accusations that Satan will bring as he begins to lose. Look back in chapter one. There's something strange about the episode that I find interesting. If you look at beginning in verse 13, it tells you that when Satan left God's presence, he started his work. And then a messenger came and told Job 
oxen was plowing in the field and uh, the donkeys were grazing, but the Sabaeans came and attacked and they stole all the animals and killed all the field hands. And watch this. And the messenger said, I'm the only one who escaped alive to tell you what has happened. Okay, I got that. Now look at the next line. Verse 16 says, while he was talking, another messenger came and said, Boat and lightning struck the sheep and the shepherd and fried them, burned them to a crisp. And I'm the only one who got out alive to come and tell you what has happened. Okay, that's two times. Let's, let's go to the next verse, verse 17. While he was talking, another messenger arrived and said, the Chaldeans came in three different directions, raided the camels, massacred the camel drivers, and I'm the only one who got out alive to come and tell you what happened. Now we're getting problematic. Let's go to the next line. Chapter, uh, verse 18 says, and you get down, while he was still talking, another messenger arrived and said, your children were having a party at the house of the older brother and a tornado swept in and it deserted and struck the house. It collapsed on the young people and they all died. Here it is, I'm the only one who got out alive to tell you what has happened. How in the world, in all that calamity, does one person get out to tell me at every interval what happened in my journey? I want to contend there's a tension there, and the tension is God always preserves a voice that will help you walk through the wilderness if you're willing to listen when the voice arrives to tell you. One voice in all that calamity, one voice survives all the challenge. Then you look down at the next verse, verse 20, it says, and Job got his feet ripped, got on his feet, ripped his robe, shaved his head, and fell to the ground, watch this, and did the only thing that he knew to do when life tumbles in, he worshiped. Yeah. Now, wait a minute. Who thinks about to worship when you've lost your house, when you've lost your clothes, when you have lost your children, when you've lost everything you have, who thinks about worshiping? Worshiping, in fact, may very well be the last thing on my mind. But maybe Job is trying to tell us worship, that's the best time you need to engage in worship because recognize from whom all blessings flow and if I lost it this time that's okay the same God that gave it to me before is the same God who will open up the windows of heaven and give it to me one more time is there anybody in here who can remember when you lost something and something has been taken from you but you came to church anyway you kept on celebrating God anyway you showed up in worship you lift up your heart only hands you lift up your voice unto God and you say Lord naked came I into this world and naked I'm going to leave but in the meantime I bless your name at all times and I know from whom all blessings flow is there anybody who can celebrate I know the God who will bring you out whenever darkness has arrived in your life and I know the God who will make sure that even though you lost it you'll never be with out because God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. Watch this. Watch this. And then verse 22 of chapter 1 says, in all this calamity, not once through all of this did Job sin and not once did Job blame God. Now hold on to that. Hold on to that. Put a little circle around verse 22. Put a pin in that because you're going to see something here in a second. Then the second, the second test come, chapter 2. Then I told you Satan says, well, you know, it's his health. If you do something with his health, then we're going we gonna to really see what's going to happen. And, and it begins to happen that he loses his health. 
Verse 4 says that Satan answered and said, a human will do anything to save his life, but what do you think will happen if you reach down and took away his health? He will curse you to your face. And then once again, God volunteers to say, go ahead, strike his body, but you can't kill him. Satan left God and struck Job with terrible sores. Job was ulcered and scabs from head to his feet. They itched and oozed so badly that he took a piece of a broken pottery to scrape himself which meant that Job's physical body was in so much pain that he even was reduced to taking a pot's shear to wash or to scrape to get relief temporarily from the pain that was agonizing in his body. Yet God stamped approved this. God let it happen. Then the text says, if that ain't enough, you lose your children, you lose your possessions, you lose your health. Then the one to whom you said, I do, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, raises the question, do you still hold your integrity with God? Are you still going to hold on to a God who lets you walk in such pain and who brings on you such agony. And Job responds by saying, you sound like a foolish woman. You sound like a foolish woman, he says to her, curse be and be done with God, she says to him. And he says, do we not take just the good from God? But are we not called to take the bad as well? The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Once again, verse 10 says, and not once did Job, through all that he did, sin and said anything against God. Except Something happened. Because when you read chapter 4 through chapter 36, that's the dialogue between Job and his three friends. That's where Job, after their visitation in verse 11 through 13 of chapter 2, they actually do a good thing that I think all of us are looking for when life tumbles in. We're looking for friends to come and rescue, come to give us their support. These three friends show up, and as they're coming to Job, they see him at a distance, and because of his illness by way of his depletion of body composition, they don't recognize him to the point where they know this was the Job of old, but this Job here is someone we just never anticipated seeing. But they did the greatest thing, I think. They came and saw him. They came, says the text, to sit down where he sat. But most importantly, they came and said nothing. They watched into his grief for seven days and seven nights. We've been critical of these three friends for doing such action, but in reality, that's probably what you want to do when you go to visit someone whose life has tumbled in simply because you know as well as I know you don't have all the answers as much as you try to be spiritual you don't know all the answers you don't know why that person has lung cancer you don't know why that person has prostate cancer you have no idea why that lady has ovarian cancer. You don't have any way of knowing why that person, you don't know anything. All you know is the person is ill and perhaps your best defense and, and your best compliment is just show up with your presence 
and say nothing at all other than to let them know I'm here to comfort you and to do whatever you have need to be done but stop trying to be a doctor when you ain't never been to medical school you can't diagnose somebody's problem and you don't know what's going on they stared into his grief and yet it created a silence in Job that shocks us when he does speak in chapter 3. No one preaches on chapter 3 because it doesn't fit the story. It doesn't fit the health and the wealth theology. We hear about Job in chapter 1 and 2, what he has and then what he loses. But in chapter 42, what he gets back, double for his trouble. We all like that because we're all praying, Lord, Lord, since we like Job, am I going to get double for all the trouble that I've got to go through? But we never entertain chapter 3 because it's an enigma. It's something we never anticipated. Job unveils what's really going on under the surface. Job went to church on Sunday. He put the face on. He looked like he had it all under control. But underneath in Job's heart was the question and this is not for those of us who are ultra super religious who sit on the throne every single day <clears throat> this, this is the question for those of us who struggle with the tension of living and for those of us whom God permits life's tumbling moments to stretch us this is for those of us who are now wrestling in a darkness and although I have on a facade, you don't know what's actually going on in my life. This is for those of us who are honest with ourselves and Job is asking in chapter 3, why was I even born? In fact, why didn't I die at birth, God? But Job tells us something in his very behavior that we might want to consider when life tumbles in. Notice he doesn't go to the three friends to seek a solution. Instead, he takes his case to Almighty God. Because Job says, what's the use of me conversing with those who are in the same boat I'm in and truth be known, they're trying to figure out why they life going through the mess that it's going through just like I'm trying to figure out. Listen to the verbiage of what he says in this third chapter. Listen to the depth of this man who wants to die because pain has overtaken his once praise. Frustration is digging into his once affirmed faith. And the pulse of agony is no longer allowing him to experience the peace of God. Listen to what he says. Blot out the day that I was born, God. In fact, what's the purpose of us living when you're going to block all the roads to us understanding what's going on. Job is not the only one who's raised questions to God as to why you let me go through this. Because you and I are Job of the 21st century. I know you want to act holy, but have you not actually raised questions to God? Why me? Why do I have to experience this? Why am I going through this? Why'd you pick me? Why'd you volunteer me? What about the guy next door who never docks the door of a church? Who could care less about you? Who could care less about religion? 
and who seems to enjoy life to the fullest. Every day I come home, I see him out on the deck, just laid back, chilling, enjoying life. And every time I turn around, something big is happening in his life. He seems to always be flourishing while my life seems to be nothing more than a walk in hell. What, what, why me, God? Why, why not give me definition in terms of why am I going? Have I done something, says Job, to deserve this? Are you really going to treat me like this, as good and faithful as I have been to you? Oh. Be careful of self-righteousness. Be careful of reminding God how much you came to church and how much you gave and how much you've worked and how much you've done for the kingdom. Be careful because remember, truth be known, you could never do enough to even get what you got. You could never do enough to get the favor that you got. You could have never done enough to get the mercy that you got. In fact, remember, it was just yesterday when you fell short of his glory and if it had not been for mercy and goodness that protected you, you would be falling short right now. So why God? Why do I have to go through this? Why chapter three is Job's mental anguish? Because Job helps us recognize that it's okay to tell God you're upset. I know, I know we've been taught traditionally, you don't ever question God. You, you just accept whatever God sends you. No, that's not what Job says. That's not what Job does. In fact, Job's faith doesn't suggest that. Job's faith says, wait a minute, I want to understand, if I can, why this is going on. And so you remember, I'm going to hasten to my clothes. You remember when Job, after dialoguing with all of his friends, and he told his friends on several occasions, one of them he said, you know what? I do have a question for God. If a man dies, will he live again? See, he's contemplating what will happen if death. And then he says, in all of my appointed time, I'm just going to wait until my change comes. I'm going to hold out and see what happens. But in the meantime, I wish I could see God face to face. I'd give him a piece of my mind and, and I would give him the finger and roll my neck as best as I could. And I'd let him know how I feel. And he said that several times, I think it's around chapter 37, and God shows up in a whirlwind. And God says, in a very interesting fashion, you've been looking for me? You know, in reality, you don't have to look very far because everywhere you move, I'm there. And then in chapter 37, all the way up to chapter 40 and 41, God throws at Job a series of questions. So you think you know more about living than I do. You think you know more about the world than I do. Got a few questions for you. Just a few, Job. Sit back. Don't, in fact, you don't ask questions. You let me ask the questions now. And you see if you can give me some answers. Uh, where were you? When I slung the stars in the atmosphere. Where were you? When I told the earth to bring forth its fruit. Where, where were you? When I breathed into the nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul, uh, where were you when chaos occurred and yet I calmed the raging sea? Where were you when they were on their sickness and I brought health to them? Where were you when they needed an answered prayer and I provided an answer? Where were you when your back was against the wall and who brought you out of that darkness? Do you know who you talking to? And Job said, hold up, wait a minute God, hold up, hold up, I, I got it, I got it. I recognize chapter 41 and 42 particularly, I recognize I cannot compare with who you are. I understand, I, I, I don't know as much as you know. And so God, I, I, I've come to realize this. 
I made a huge mistake. And my final point is this. We've all wondered. We're still wrestling. And this is, as I told him at 8 o'clock, this is not the answer, but it's a answer. We all want to know why did Job have to go through what he's going through? Why? Why volunteer me? Can I tell you what I think a answer is? Yeah? Would you like to know? I thought you would. Here it is. In chapter 1, it says that Job was a righteous man. He hated evil and did that which was right. But in chapter 42, in verse 5, I love the Eugene Peterson translation. It says that Job says, I must admit, God, now I know. He says, I once lived by rumors about you. Did, did you get that? I once lived on the rumors that I once knew about you. See, when you come in church and you be shouting about God is good all the time and all the time God is good and that's because you've never been through, now you're going through, you've been working on the rumors. You've been talking about how God will heal you, God will make a way, you go visit some man, you quote all these scriptures, ain't never been sick a day in your life outside of a common cold and you're going to tell these folk what God would do and you've never experienced that and now you've been operating off of rumors. And Job says, I once lived by rumors of you, but now I have it all firsthand with my own eyes and with my own hands. Want to know why? I think Job had to go through what he go through because he knew theoretically about God, but he never knew God personally in his own journey. See, Everything you read in chapter 1, particularly open 11 verses, Job is a blessed man. There's no such thing as a problem. There's no such thing as a challenge. There's no such thing as a sickness. There's no such thing as death. This man is living high and flying high. And then all of a sudden, Job is stripped of everything that he has. And in chapter 3, he cries out, I wish I were dead. But in chapter 42, Job says, I know without fact now, God, I didn't know you. I didn't know you were really were a way maker. I heard. I didn't know that you were a healer. I heard. I didn't know that you were a provider. I heard. I didn't know that you were a sealer. I heard. I got rumors from mama and daddy what you have done and what you could do. But now, my grandmama and granddaddy told me about God to be your bridge over troubled water. But now, they told me he'll be a doctor in the sick room. But now, they told me he'll be your walking stick in the wilderness. But now, they told me he know how to make a way out of nowhere, but now they told me he'll walk you through the valley of the shadow of death, but now they told me he'll supply all your needs, but now they told me he'll put clothes on your back and food on the table and shelter over your head, but now I know for myself he's a way maker, he's a healer, he's a provider, He'll walk with you. He'll talk with you. He'll watch over you. He'll guide you. He'll hold you. He'll be your anchor. I know all this now for myself, says Job. Not rumors. And when life tumbles in, that's what you're going to need. You're going to need to know God for yourself. God lets us walk through those tumbling moments to strengthen who we are and to strengthen our relationship with him. 
I'm going to tell you this and then I'm done. When I was a football player doing spring training, we had to learn this little practice, little, I guess you call it, uh, yeah, drill. Thank you, Deke. This little drill. And the little drill was you had to stand before your fellow teammate with your back to them. And when the coach says fall, you had to fall. Now, just imagine Reverend George is standing behind me and God says fall and I just need to fall back. And for the first couple of days, many of us wouldn't fall. <laughs> and I must tell you, about midway of the season, some of us were still not falling. <laughs> and those who wouldn't fall never got to play in the game. Because the objective of the drill was to trust your teammate that if push came to shove and you had to drop, they'd be there to help you out. Now that doesn't happen on the football field. That wasn't the objective. The objective was to teach you to trust your fellow teammate because it wasn't just a lesson for the football field. Come on now, you gotta listen to me. It was a lesson for life. And I understood in paralleling that with God's story through Job, Job didn't ever know what it meant to really trust God until after all was gone, he had to drop back and let God hold him in the pond and catch him so that he would never be destroyed. And somebody is right in the midst of the tumbling moment this afternoon. I mean, your life is right there in the dumps. And God is saying, can you trust me? Will you trust me? Will you fall back and just rest in my hands? And I know it's, it's, it's dangerous. And I got to tell you, the first time I did it, scared as I don't know what. Because if you fall, he doesn't catch you, you could get injured. Anything could happen. Freaky injury could happen. But when you got a good teammate who had already been through it himself, he knew how to stand. And his only words was, don't worry, trust me, I got you. And God is here telling somebody this morning through the lips of this preacher, trust me, I got you. Just fall back into my arms of grace and my arms of mercy. I promise you, you won't lose. Now, I ain't talking much about Job's three friends because you know, uh, that dialogue that they had with Job, all the criticism they made of Job. When you get to chapter 42, God looks at them and says, you know what, I'm mad at y'all because y'all not only didn't talk about me right, you didn't represent me at all. In fact, let me show you how mad I am. Bring an offering, and the only way you're going to get free, Job going to have to pray your freedom. And the Bible says that Job does pray for them, and as a result, God gives back Job a double potion of what he lost. So much so that he only he also gives back his children, but he gives back four generation of children. And Job lived another hundred and forty years, and it says he he came to be an old man, he died, but he lived a full life. Do you know what that means? That Job realized because I'm certain another storm came, another messenger came with another disappointing word, but rather than to panic, Job just crossed his arms 
and read back in the hands of Almighty God and said, Lord, we have been here before. Your word tells me that you neither sleep nor slumber. Ain't no need of me stand up all night long worrying about this thing. You go ahead and handle it. I'm going to sleep. I'm going to rest. And the word says, David, I have never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging for bread. And if God delivers the righteous out of all of their affliction, ain't no need of me worrying about when life tumbles in. Because it will tumble in. It will. But here it is when you got an anchor. In times like these, you need an anchor. In times like these, you need to be sure, very, very sure, that the anchor to which you're holding on to, it grips the solid rock. And do I have any witnesses in the house today? That solid rock is the king of kings. That solid rock is the lord of lords. That solid rock is the fairest of 10,000. That solid rock is the bright and morning star. That solid rock is the prince of peace. That solid rock is the bomb from Gilead. Y'all make me think like y'all been through something before and you've had to hold on to the unchanging hand of God. You've had to build your hope on the things that are eternal with God. Y'all make me act like y'all know who Jesus is. Like you know that he's the savior of your life. That he's been the sustainer of your life. That he's been the keeper of your life. You act like you know that he's the joy in the wilderness and the peace that surpasses all understanding. Y'all make me think y'all know who he really is the king of king and glory of all if you know who he is give God some praise up in this house that he is worthy of such this afternoon hallelujah I'm done when life tumbles in what then? You better find him. <laughs>